May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. On August the 28th, 1963, 26-year-old George Raveling stood on a platform opposite the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., as he delivered that famous speech, I Have a Dream. As he finished the speech, George Raveling uh, says to Dr. King, could I have that speech? And as he was about to stick it in his pocket, he said, sure, it's yours, and he handed it to him. George Raveling still has that speech today in his possession, even though he's been offered upwards of $3 million for it. He says, I'm not going to sell it. It belongs to my children. I want to pass it on. I want to keep it in our family as long as we can. Could you imagine? Could you imagine that Dr. King handed you that speech and you put it in your pocket and, and right now at home in your desk drawer or in your safety deposit box or wherever you might put it, you still had it. I mean, it would be like having the Gettysburg Address, you know, in your in your possession, or or Kennedy's, um, you know, ask not what you can do for you. Well, you know the speech. <laughs> ask not what your country can do for you. You know that one. Imagine that you had that in your possession, the original manuscript. You know, King typed it out himself. I don't know about you, but I'm a bit of a collector. I always feel like there is something that's like right around me that's going to be worth a lot of money or at least it's going to be notable because I don't really keep it for money's sake, but I'm always thinking that there's something that's going to be a valuable piece of history that, you know, I'm going to hold on to and say, this was, you know, this was mine. Um, Not for financial windfall, but just to sort of make history come alive. I don't know if any of you have a love for history like that. I, I was thinking the other day about how when I was a boy, we used to collect baseball cards. I had, I had shoe boxes filled with baseball cards that my mother, <laughs> okay, they're gone, you know, they're, they're, they're lost. They're, well, they're not lost. Somebody has them, but I don't. Um, but anyway, we used to collect baseball cards, but we were stupid. I don't know. I would collect Cincinnati Reds baseball cards. So I would trade these really valuable cards away for some, you know, uh, washed-up rookie with a wishbone C on his head. You know, as long as it was a Cincinnati red card, that's what we wanted. It gets worse. Um, we would take the very best Cincinnati Reds baseball cards, a Johnny Bench rookie or Pete Rose rookie card, you know, that could pay for my child's education right now, and we would take those, and with a clothespin, we would attach them to the four... The, forks on our bicycles so that the card would go into the spokes and sound like a motor when you rode down the... This love affair of mine with motorbikes goes way back, okay? (laughs) And so we would take even the very best ones that we had and we would ruin them. The boys in my neighborhood were not to be trusted with historic heirlooms. (laughs) Not at all. You know that there is something in your possession right now. I mean, I don't know what it is. And it's not something significant, you know. It might be like a newspaper or a comic book or, I don't know, a, a child's toy that, you, you know, is in your house. Something that is really valuable and you just don't know what it is. This is a place where a time machine would come in real handy, right? I mean... Let's face it, there are a lot of places where a time machine would come in handy. But this is one place. Imagine you could like jump into the future ten years 
and you realized that iPhone 5s would be worth $30,000. You know, you would say, I'll keep that one. You know, I'll make sure I take good care of it. Or this newspaper or comic book or whatever it is. If you had something, you know, something common today, but that you knew someday would be really valuable, either in terms of money or just historic significance, what would you do with it? You know exactly what you'd do with it, right? You would, you would take it and you would put it in somewhere safe. Somewhere a child won't break it. Somewhere you won't spill your coffee on it. You know, somewhere that it's going to be put away for safekeeping. And, and in ten years you're going to go get it and take it to the Smithsonian or whatever you would do with it. You're going to, you're going to take care of this valuable thing. But what if the valuable thing isn't a thing? I mean, what if it's intangible, you know? What if it's something like manners, etiquette? What if it's something like grammar or faith? You see, then all of a sudden it becomes different, doesn't it? What you would do with a tangible item is exactly the opposite of what you would do with the intangible. If you had a tangible item, you store it in a, in a drawer. Um, did you know that I don't know, 20 years ago Superman died? <laughs> Maybe that's news to you. But in the comic book world, people know that Superman was killed off. And then he was brought back to life. It was right about the time of my 22-year-old's birth, uh, in a birth, and so I bought those two editions of that comic book. You know, um, Superman's dead, Superman's back to life. And I stuck them in a special box for him. They're still in mint condition. They've never been opened or touched, read, just regular comic books. And someday, he's going to thank me for those. That's what you do with tangible things. It's not what you do with intangibles. It's not the way that we would preserve or practice those things that we want to keep. In the Western world right now, there is a, a bit of an obsession with the idea of leadership. If you were to go to Amazon this afternoon, type in leadership books... There would be 100,000, I'm not kidding you, actually 96,780 titles on Amazon under leadership in books. 100,000 titles. Um, most of them are written for the business world or uh, politics or sports, those sort of things. Um, in the church even. Uh, they're, they're written on the ways that people can become, you know, that sort of... Uh, powerful person in, in these world. One of them is called um, it's by John Maxwell. John Maxwell is actually an alumnus of the same university that I went to. It's called The 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. Follow them and people will follow you. I want to say like I'm tired of people following me, you know? Like, quit following me, you know? That's why I say like the children, where? Go. Go somewhere else. But this, these books, they're really popular. But I want to suggest to you, if you want a really good read on leadership, go to the New Testament. One part in the New Testament, one little page. Look at, look at the page of Philemon. This is the whole... You could memorize the entire letter to Philemon. Probably in an afternoon. You know, you could memorize it. All 25 verses of it. There's only one chapter. And this letter was actually the only personal correspondence we have in the New Testament. It's the only personal correspondence we have in the entire Bible. St. Paul wrote a letter 
to this chap we'll call Philemon, because that was his name. (laughs) And Paul wrote him a letter, and somehow Philemon had the foresight to say, I think I should keep this. And Mrs. Philemon didn't throw it into the garbage, if you have this issue at your house like I do. And somehow it made it all the way here 20 centuries later. Someone said, we got to keep this letter. And I'm glad they did. If you read the letter to Philemon, let me just kind of give you a little backstory to kind of help it make sense. It deals with this fellow Philemon, who is a wealthy businessman. We know this because he has a large house. Um, He has many servants. One of them is called Onesimus. Onesimus is a slave. He's literally an indentured servant to Philemon. And apparently, sometime, Paul, St. Paul, had been traveling through the area of Turkey, the city called Colossae, and um, he had been preaching. Philemon came to faith in Jesus, and uh, he, he became a new person. But apparently, while Paul was preaching, or they were holding services, Onesimus, probably carrying around a tray of drinks or whatever a slave would do in those days, overheard too. And Onesimus came to faith in Jesus. And so there was this church that met in Philemon's home. Onesimus the slave is there. The church gathers. Paul preaches. And so on. But after Paul left, there's this little rift that developed between Philemon, the businessman owner, and his slave Onesimus. I don't know what Onesimus did. Nobody knows. But there's a rift between them. And um, Onesimus ran away. Now, you have to understand this. If you were a runaway slave in the first century, the punishment for this was death. You were to be executed for this. And so Onesimus runs away. It must have been something really big. And the letter that is in the New Testament, called the letter to Philemon, is St. Paul telling Philemon, look, I'm writing you this letter. Onesimus is delivering it. Here's how I want you to handle this situation. So that's what we have. We have a letter from Paul to Philemon. And you have, you have to imagine this slave, this runaway slave Onesimus, who comes back carrying the letter. And I imagine with a shaking hand, don't you? I think there's all sorts of things about leadership in this, um, in this letter. And it comes from these three different people. Paul, famous missionary, apostle, who we call St. Paul, Philemon, wealthy businessman, leading Christian in his community, and Onesimus, the lowest rung on the, on the social ladder, a slave. Look with me, if you will. Take your bulletin and look at this, with a little backup and introduction. Look at this letter, will you? In, in verse 7, about halfway down through there, or about a third of the way, I guess, Paul is writing, and here's what he says to Philemon. He says, verse 7, I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother. This kindness, right? Philemon, what a great chap. You've been so helpful to me. Because the hearts of the saints, all the Christians have been refreshed through you. You are just such a, Philemon, you're just such a breath of fresh air. That's what he says to him. Accordingly, though, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. Paul is saying, listen, Philemon, I love you. You're a great guy. You're such a joy to be around. I really like you. And we go way back, you know, you and I. 
and I'm an apostle. It's like a bishop on steroids, right? And I can tell you, I can tell you what to do, and you have to do it. But I'm not going to do that. Instead, I'm just going to ask you to do it. Look at verse 9. For love's sake, I appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and a prisoner for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you, look at this, for my child, Onesimus. Paul says, Onesimus ran away and guess where he came? He came to me. I'm in prison. Onesimus ran here to me. And I'm sending him back, but I'm sending him back with instructions. Do what's right. Here's the first principle, I think, of being a godly leader. And that is that leadership requires humility. It requires gentle humility. Paul says, look, if I wanted to, I could command you. Hey, do this, you know. But he doesn't. He doesn't do that. He says, here, do what's right. Do it for our sake. Do it for our friendship's sake. Do it because it's morally good. And we know that Philemon must have done it. So the humility that Paul shows in his leadership is then implanted in Philemon. We know that he welcomes Onesimus back. He doesn't have him executed. Two reasons. <laughs> Number one, he kept the letter. Right? I mean, that would be the first thing that would go, right? You get rid of that evidence. That's altogether gone. But the second thing, St. Ignatius, a couple decades later, is writing a letter... And he's talking about the church in Ephesus. Guess who becomes the bishop in Ephesus? Onesimus. Onesimus, the slave, becomes the bishop of Ephesus. He becomes one of the leading Christians in the, in the ancient world. This slave now is a bishop. And so I think, Onesimus, I think Philemon shows great leadership in that he was willing to, in humility, accept that, that instruction and be willing to do what's morally right, even if it's not popular in the world. I mean, think about, think about Philemon in his world, in the secular world, well, the, the non-Christian world. How he might have looked weak. How the other business people might have said, Hey, you, you know how to deal with that, Philemon, uh, that Onesimus fellow. He's a really bad news. You've got to chop his head off and make a clean break with this guy. No pun intended. We've got to be done, you know. But Philemon doesn't. In humility, in gentleness, he receives instruction and lives it out. But what about Onesimus, the runaway slave? Can you imagine St. Paul saying to him, All right, so here I'm going to write this letter and you're going to take it back. <laughs> like, no, uh, you apparently have this wrong, you know. I, I'm not going back there. I ran away from there. You know, this guy is going to kill me. No, you're going to do it. Look at verse 10, will you? I appeal to you, he says to Philemon, Paul says to Philemon, for my child Onesimus, whose father became, I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now indeed he is useful to you and to me. Now here's what you don't get. The word Onesimus means useful. Paul says, I know you called him useless. It, 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 something happened, right, back at the home of Philemon. 
I get the impression, this is just me, spitballing here a little bit, I get the impression that Onesimus was one of those klutzy kind of servants, you know? He was a servant who brought out the tray of drinks and he's trembling all the time and he spills them on people, you know? You tell him to hang up a picture and it's like crooked or way high or way low and he goes walking through the stable and then he walks through the family room, you know? And you're like, what are you doing? And this thing had happened one too many times. And Philemon blew up at him, and Onesimus was afraid, and he ran away. And Paul says, you're going back home. Onesimus did what was right. And it took a lot of courage for him to do so. Perhaps he, more than anybody, showed what it was to be a leader. To not only do what's right, but to have the moral courage to do it when it's most difficult. As I said, I've, written, I've read a lot of, of books on, um, on leadership, a lot from Christian authors. I think leadership is really important. I think all of us are called to be leaders no matter what, what area of life that we are in. Because by being a leader, we can bring about real positive change in the world. We can help people to follow Christ by what we do. We can make a difference in someone's life, and that person's life can be duplicated a thousand times over in generations to follow. But whatever sort of leadership we have, if it doesn't have humility and gentleness and moral courage, it's worthless. We follow not like the... We're not leaders like the politicians who want power or the moguls who crave money. But we are, Christian, we are leaders like our Savior Christ who wants gentleness, who wants peace and simplicity in the world. I read a story about um, this fourth grade teacher. And uh, the fourth grade teacher introduced this game called Balloon Stomp. Have you ever heard of this? Where you take all uh, the children and you tie a balloon to their ankle. And the instructions are, look, um, the last one with a balloon still intact on their ankle wins. Okay, So the object is to stomp out everybody else's balloons. And so the whistle is blown and the kids go at it. With Can you imagine fourth graders trying to stomp on balloons they tied each other? I mean, it was a madhouse, right? And so everybody's going at it and eventually there's one kid with a balloon left on his ankle. And you know this kid, don't you? you I mean, you've got a picture of him. He is the most disliked, uh, you know, unsavory kid in the entire fourth grade. Because in order to win the balloon stomp game, You've got to be rude, you've got to be ruthless, you've got to be pushy, you've got to be offensive. That's how you win it. Same teacher took the same game, but she had another group of fourth graders that were all developmentally disabled. Explained the same rules to the kids, and maybe she did it too fast, I don't know, you know, something happened in the explanation. But the kids got the idea that the balloons needed to be stomped out. But it was the balloons that were the enemies, not the other kids. And so when she blew the whistle, something completely different happened. A little girl knelt down and she held her balloon. And this little boy came over and he stomped on it. And then he knelt down and held his balloon and she stomped on it. And all the other kids were helping each other stomp out their own balloons. And when the last balloon was gone, they all erupted in cheers. Everybody won. Which one of them do you think got it right? 
In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.